Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, a, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word revealed. We thank you that you have shown us what it is that you would require of us. We thank you that you have revealed your character to us. Father, as we encounter our text today, I pray that you would bear it on our hearts. And Father, as we know, we cannot stay in neutral, but we are always either moving forward or backward. And I pray that those that hear today would have ears to hear. Father, we trust that your word will not return void. And we know that it will have its desired effect. And Father, we pray that that would be to be in submission to our King as we see him seated on the throne. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's sermon is Christ Enthroned. We're closing up the last of our reflections in Hebrews, uh, particularly in chapter 10, as we begin to really change, change a course over the next couple of weeks. This week, we want to specifically look at this idea uh, that we've already looked at in many cases, but we want to make sure that we recognize the emphasis that he's landing with it for what we might do with it in the weeks to come. Kind of help us get a picture for the beginning. It reminded me, as I look at this passage, of a place that we used to get to go to in Canada before uh, COVID-19 hit, and we haven't been up there since then. But there's this beach that we go to in the bay, the Georgian Bay. And if you've ever been to a beach, you walk out onto sand, yes? No sand on this beach, none. So you're saying, how's it a beach? right? Sand and surf, that's what makes a beach. Well, in this particular case, the sand is rocks, and it's rocks the size of my fist. Usually they're, they're flatter, right? Because this is the stone-skipping capital of the world. There is no sand. It is, it is rocks as far as you can see. It's like the perfect place for stoning. Like, that's what I imagine in the New Testament when they picked up rocks to stone them. They're all on Big Bay. These stones are awesome, and there's a infinite number of them, right? You pick them up, and you can throw these massive discs across the water and skip them as far as you want. And as you know, if you've skipped stones before, it's a bounce, 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 pitter, 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 right? Same thing happens in our text. As you look through this passage, I want you to be able to see how to read your Bible as he's taking a theme and unraveling it for us. We have this big hit, and then it hits again, and then it hits some more. That happens for us as we look at our first point today, and that we are to live as one set apart for God's service. We're to live as one set apart for God's service. And particularly inside this picture for us of being made perfect, 
being made perfect. You see some language that we want to start with. If the initial rock skip, you're asking what that is, what happens when it first hits the water, that would be verse 1 of chapter 10. Verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's saying that it can't do this stuff, but what is the stuff? What are we trying to accomplish? What is chapter 10 trying to help us see, do, be? Those who draw near need to be made perfect. And this can't do it. So our first kind of skip here is this, who are we? Well, we're those who are supposed to draw near. And I'm not gonna get to talk about that a whole lot, but that sets you up for next week in verse 22. But for us today, it's this picture of being made perfect. That's the first skip off the water. We need to be made perfect. And those sacrifices can't do that. The next one that we see is in verse 10. In verse 10, it starts to pick up some more speed for us as we see it hit. But it changes language a little bit. How does the be made perfect happen? Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You say, well, pastor, that's a different word. It is a different word. It's not being made perfect. How do you get to being made perfect? Through sanctification. This is how we get the end result. So as you tie threads through the scripture, I hope you see these rock skips. This is what we're all tying together. And it picks up a lot of speed in our chapter or our passage today. So this picture of sanctification we'll keep going with. But why do we need to be made perfect? And what does sanctification have to do with it? I've been thinking all week about that great picture that Pastor Jeff gave us last week of that stain. Like that, that is a very visceral feeling, if not just the experience of making the stain. Uh, I mean, I appreciate his very personal story of, of the, the grape juice, and I'm s- still shocked it hasn't happened here. Like every Sunday, you just expect to fumble. Um, and it hasn't happened, so praise be the Lord for that. I think of The Office, and I know all of you have seen this gif at some point, when Kevin comes in with this giant pot of chili, and it falls down, and then the stain. But it's not there anymore the next week, right? They put down like a sacrificial rug. The stain is everywhere, and you can't shake it. And if you're ever the one that has made the stain before, you know the guilt that comes extra with that, right? Let alone the horror of just seeing it. That stain is something that we can't get rid of. But I appreciate our text this week in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Can never take away that that same, but the take away aspect is is what I I think our passage is helpful with this week. And moving from a stain to like, how do I get it off? Literally, the, the phrase there is to take away what surrounds. To take away what surrounds. It can never take away what surrounds you, which is sin. It's this kind of picture of like taking a really, really sopping wet blanket, let your children leave out in the yard because for some reason they need blankets in the yard still in the summer. They rained, it's sopping wet, you pick it up, there's probably bugs and other fungus and stuff on it. But then you take that blanket and instead of holding it like this because it's gross, you take it and you put it over your head. And then you wander around like that. That's the picture that sin has. It clings to you, it covers your vision, It probably smells bad. It's covered and you can't get it off. It's so much easier to throw off a regular blanket, right? But the sin which clings so closely has this veil over us, like peeling off 
a wet blanket. These sacrifices can never peel off, take away what surrounds you. Of course, we know in our, this is not the first time that we see this picture. Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians 3.16. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil, the covering, that which surrounds is removed. It takes it off. And so we continue to see our rock skip through this picture of how do I be made perfect? End of verse 11, take away sins. That's what we need to have happen in order to be perfect, right? Next rock, rock skip, verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected. There's our word again. For all time, who? Those who are being sanctified. And those who are being sanctified must be who? Those who are drawing near. Those who are drawing near will be made perfect by sanctification. And sanctification happens through the single offering that has made perfect. If that doesn't pick up enough for you, it continues in verse 16. Now with a different language, this is the covenant that I will make with them, right? A covenant is for who? Those that have drawn near, that original audience. Who gets to stay in covenant and, and, and enjoy its blessings? Those who are not under curse, those who obey covenant, they get to enjoy blessings. And as the stone skips the last couple times into verse 16, or I'm sorry, into 18, we see this, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any offering for sin. Those who had sin, who were covered, who were veiled, are now uncovered. Those who needed to be made perfect from their own sin have been forgiven. And now there's no longer any offering because the one has made perfect. I hope that helps you in just your Bible reading to look for these kinds of themes, tie them together, see how he develops them. <coughs> you know, as you read this, he's talking about the same idea, but can you see how he unpacks the different pieces as you move through? Because this is a really important thing for us to recognize is that it's not just cool. The offering's been made and forgiveness is there. What has he called us to? To draw near as perfected people. And what does that person look like? The holiness of God. The holiness of God. This is the goal. This is the effect of drawing near, of the offering, of being sanctified. To be set apart for holy use is to be made perfect, to image his holiness. Well, now we run into the base problem of humanity. We hate God's holiness. We talked about that this morning in our Old Testament survey class, that we see that this is one of the primary themes that we are hit with immediately. Man doesn't like the holiness of God. We don't want it. And we say, well, yeah, I do. That's, that's God. In your last sermon, you're like, how do we get to God? I agree. It's hard to get to somewhere you don't want to go. We hate God's holiness. Our culture hates God's holiness. We, believers, are probably a little bit more shaky on this than we think we are. I was talking with Pastor Jeff earlier this week about this, and we kind of came up with three good gauges to consider how we view the holiness of God. Because if we have a small view of sin, we have a small view of God. If we have a small view of the offense against the holiness of God, then we have a small view of the God who is holy. 
So number one, do you think God's holiness is good for other people? Do you think God's holiness is good for other people? Do you get nervous and shrink back and start sweating a little bit when somebody brings up Leviticus in the public square? <clears throat> when you see the punishment due for sin in the Old Testament, do you be like, yeah, yeah, I know it's there. But, but what? When you see a whole family removed from the face of the planet for all eternity in Achan, in the Valley of Achor, where him and his family and all his, his possessions are devoted to destruction, does it make you nervous? Are you ashamed of that? Do you think that God's holiness is good for other people? Because if we think that that law is good, because it comes from a good God, then it is good for God's people. How often do we start to shrink back when we consider the holiness of God because it's offensive to sinners. Number two, that was all, that was all number one. <laughs> number two, does it make you angry then when you see God's holiness profaned? Does it make you angry when you see God's holiness profaned? Clearly the most obvious example right now is that which God has taken as a sign for his mercy over us in the rainbow, and it has been absolutely profaned. Think beyond that. To the order of families being disrupted, to war being made on the nuclear family. That which God has set as a motion for bringing flourishing to humanity has had war made on it the theft of the nuclear family. When you see roles reversed, when God has designed things in the family, and for, uh, as I'm sure you heard in your other class today, God's preferred pronouns. <laughs> what is it for man to be man and woman to be woman? And we take those and invert them, or worse, adopt the other for ourselves. When this happens at home, even without surgery, does it make you angry when you see God's holiness profane? Number three, do you have a daily desire to do what honors God? If you really treasure God and his holiness, then you will have a daily desire to be more like that. That as you encounter decisions through the day and have conversations with people, you will do so through the lens of the holiness of God. What demand does the fact that there is a God and he is holy and he has revealed himself to me? What demand is that place on my life in this moment, right now, while you're writing down notes, while you're parenting your kid next to you? Can you live a life that's filtered through the lens of God's holiness? Because if you're ashamed of it, you're going to have a hard time doing all three of those things. You don't actually treasure it. And so we stand in a, in a weird spot here, right? As we summarize all this together. We have this picture of this offering that wasn't working. We go back and summarize some more in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
We need to have a conscience made perfect. We need to be those who draw near, but the the gifts and sacrifices aren't working. And then we saw in chapter 10, verse 1, that's what we need. It can't do it, though. Now, here's the problem for us as we think about this, and specifically in the light of the holiness of God. When we talk about then Jesus as that one offering for our sins, the one that actually sanctifies, the one that makes us perfect, and then we go and we tell people about the holiness of God, and we don't shrink back, then we get kind of this pushback from people, right? Because we say Jesus is the only way, and we're right in saying that, and you should say that. But it's not just his ways. It's not just his laws. His holiness matters. We're talking about that, yes. But the pushback that you get is, oh, you're just uh, trying to conform me into that Old Testament law. It's just the Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's just about the pursuit of the whole. No, it's not just about that. It's about the fact that you can't do that. And so you stand needing an offering. As we heard about last week from Pastor Jeff, that's our state. We don't have it. We don't have anything in our hands. There's nothing that we can offer. We need one who has the perfect will to lay his life down willingly for us. And so it's not just that Jesus is the only way. It's not just that his way and his laws and they're good for you are the only way. It's the fact that because he's the only offering that was acceptable. And so don't get snookered by pagans here as you talk about the gospel with them. Because if they can rope you into just about his laws which are good for them and are good for you. If they can snooker you into just talking about his ways or turn it into philosophy and talk about how this is a more enlightened way to live your life. I reckon, I mean, there's stoicism. Men generally love that right now. There's stoicism plus Jesus, right? Because all of these fit together. No, it's not just his ways because you can do all the ways and you're still not good enough. So what are you gonna do? He's the only acceptable offering. Don't lose the gospel as you talk about the gospel. You have a need, not just a way of life, not just actions that we'll talk about the necessity of doing, but you have a need. There's only one way to be made perfect. And so for us, we can see very quickly, I would hope, that Hebrews has been talking about superiority. We've started with that in chapters one and two, and we've continued with that every step of the way here. And here it is, verse 18 finally lands it for us. Verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The new covenant's superiority to the old is shown most clearly in the full and final forgiveness of sins. We went through the story of the Old Testament about six times this morning in our class tracing different themes through the story of what happens as God progressively reveals different things to his people. But this is a huge one for us. And if we really took time to consider the amount of time that we see pass in the Old Testament of God revealing himself and then showing them how to worship him. And they repeatedly bring sacrifices. Morning and night, the priests offer sacrifices. Daily, they offer different types of sacrifices, grain sacrifices, drink sacrifices, burnt offerings, pouring out, right? All of these different things. Then we have the Day of Atonement. Yearly, all of the sins for people, even the ones that they did in ignorance, right? And then what happens tomorrow? Same thing. And then what happens next year? 
Day of Atonement, Passover, Day of Atonement, offerings daily. And then you get to here, and the author of Hebrews says, you're good. All I've known is sacrifice. All I've known is repeated offerings. What do you mean you're good? What do you mean once and for all? How many times has he said once and for all already? And we're like, enough, we get it. Of course we do. How many of you have offered a sacrifice? We don't. It's easy for us. For them, they still have friends that are walking into the temple with stuff in their hands. They still have Day of Atonement. Can you imagine Christmas and all that we celebrate and not doing it? Because he said, you're good. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do Christmas, but like, that's what we're used to, right? And they're going to keep doing Christmas, but we're like, it's done. We're good. That's really hard to swallow, isn't it? That's what they feel on the Day of Atonement. Showing up to worship in the church on the Day of Atonement while all of the people that I've known and everything that is my heritage continues on with a big sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's hard to swallow. But that's what he's saying here. This is the full superiority of the covenant. There is full and final forgiveness of sins. There is no more offering because it's done. It's been made perfect. One commentator says this to help kind of round it out for us in our understanding of it. He says, the sacrifice does not merely expose the nature of sin. It affects the removal of sin. In an age when moral standards are declining rapidly and ethical values are constantly exposed to ruthless scrutiny, the Christian needs continually to recall the immensity of his salvation. In the course of his daily devotional life, he should turn his eyes to Calvary and visit the empty tomb. He should say, my sin took him there, and that is where he was condemned for me. By that death, I am not only cleansed, but consecrated. I am set apart for God's service and the opportunity of this day, for Christ's glory and for the blessing of others. This kind of deliberate mental recollection is an essential part of our progressive sanctification. Without it, the Christian may hardly notice that the world around him has so squeezed him into its own mold that his standards and values are no longer distinctively Christian at all. If you want to know how to be made perfect, how to be sanctified, how to live out the Christian life, that's this. Do you look at the world through the lens of the Word of God, through His holiness? In every situation that you're in and every day, are you playing this story out? If not, you will be squeezed into a different mold because it's doing that to you every day. Every day. And that brings us to this process. So you need to be made perfect as one who draws near. And it's through sanctification. We have some kind of conflicting language here. In verse 10, it says you've been sanctified. And verse 14 says that you're being sanctified. Verse 10, by that will that we talked about last week, that willing offering, we've been sanctified. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. What do we do with this process? Is it done or is it not? Well, 
The important thing for us to recognize is that sanctification serves the purpose. What's the purpose? Being made perfect, right? That's the effect that we're at. That's the result that we're talking about. Being made perfect. He's already linked the offering with this act of purification in verse 10. And so now it's linked to this verb that he has perfected, right? This act, this result of purification, and now he has perfected it as, a, as an ongoing verb. And the problem for us, I think, as a church is that we have such a poor view in general of what sanctification is. We know it's a word, we use it, we hear it, I've used it a lot already, and you assume that you know what it is. I've defined it twice. Do you know what actual sanctification is? Why do we need to be sanctified? Why is sanctification part of being made perfect? Sanctification is the setting apart for holy use. That's the definition that you need to remember. Setting apart for holy use. The holy use is the glorification of God, the worship of God. So the picture comes from the tabernacle. Anything that was to be used in the ritual worship of God was to be sanctified before it was used or it would not be appropriate for the worship of God. So to sanctify something was to take a bowl and sanctify it, set it apart for holy use. You don't use it for anything that would profane it. It's the opposite of sanctify, to profane something. And so a bowl had to be sanctified. It had to be made appropriate set aside for holy use. Things that were profaned, as a picture we see in the Old Testament, can be made sanctified. What an incredible early picture, right? Something that was holy and was profaned can be brought back again. Early pictures of the grace of God, right? And so for us, we need to recognize that this sanctification is the being set apart for holy use. Being made holier and holier for the holy worship of a holy God. Romans 9, 19-24 talks about some of this idea of what it means for you, Christian, to be set apart for holy use. It says in verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What a picture this is of God, right? To take the same lump and to make one as a pot for the chamber, right? To collect waste and dispose of waste. It is profaned. You can never use that for the worship of God. And out of that same lump, instead to make a bowl that would collect water to wash the hands of the Levites, used for holy use. For me, this picture always comes up in wood turning as I make goblets. Some of it was made for holy use. That's not how the wood came to me. The rest of it is on the floor. It gets cut off. Out of one block of wood, some was made for holy use. The rest of it 
It is sawdust on the floor. It gets sucked up in the vacuum. It gets thrown away in the trash and probably put in the landfill. Out of one block. The, the sawdust is not on the floor yelling at me going, what the heck, man? I want to be part of the goblet. Why do you make me part of the goblet? I'm the creator. It was my decision where the blade stops and where it starts. God has sanctified us for holy use. He's prepared in advance for you to do. And so this sanctification is that being molded into. If you have an ESV study Bible, you'll see this note in there. I encourage you to use that if you have it. It says this, the Greek present participle allows for the idea of progressive sanctification in this life and present positional sanctification of the believer as one who from the start is deemed perfectly holy. So how can we have been sanctified and are being sanctified? Presently, in position before God, holy, made perfect, sanctified, set apart for holy use because he willed it and because he made the offering that makes us perfect, done. Yet we have this present participle that has a progressive sanctification. We are more and more being washed and molded and set into this final picture that we will see. That shouldn't be new to many of you, but the picture of it actually being for holy use really matters. And it really matters when the call is to be made perfect because you can't do that. You can't even do this part of being molded. And so what we find here in this perfect and final offering is this. In himself, Christ gathered up all those whom he represents to share with them his perfection. By that willing offering that we saw last week, right? A will that wasn't corrupted, a will that went willingly and offered himself up. He has gathered those whom he represents to share with him in his perfection that he has earned and given us. And so we have been made perfect. John Calvin says this, this very circumstance that they will persevere, that they will be made holy. He ascribes to their election the fact that the, the potter has chosen this piece for this use. Because for the virtue of men being frail would tremble at every breeze and would be laid down by the feeblest stroke if the Lord did not uphold it by his hand. But as he governs those whom he has elected, all the engines that Satan can employ will not prevent them from persevering to the end with unshakable firmness. I said, well, it sounds great. I understand that he, he elects, he makes it happen, but where does this firmness come in? How do, we, how, do we under, how do we do it unwaveringly? If, if we're supposed to be the holiness of God and we're supposed to reflect that, how do I do that firmly? How do I really make it to the end? If I'm set apart for God's service, how do I make it to the end? The next thing I want you to see is to know and treasure his kindness towards you. Know and treasure his kindness towards you. How do we make it to the end? Well, because the first thing that we have is a renewed covenant and blessing. A renewed covenant and blessing. Remember that the kingdom of God we define as God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing or curse. Blessing if they are obedient, curse if they are disobedient. And most of the Old Testament, we see the curses because they're not obedient. 
In fact, in the text that we're going to reference in just a minute, he says they didn't keep the covenant, and so a new one must be made. And so we see here this renewed covenant and blessing. Specifically for us, we need to recognize the role of the Holy Spirit. As we move from the Old Testament and our recollection of the priests and their administrations before us in lieu or as a stand-in, as a mediator, because God's not here yet, right? Then we move into the New Testament and we see Jesus come in the flesh. We know that he becomes then the mediator between God and man as our sacrifice. He then leaves and then sends the Holy Spirit to be that for us. So in this whole world now where I no longer offer offerings, where's my mediator? It's the Holy Spirit. He brings it to bear specifically in verse 15 in that it's not simply that God has spoken in the past. It's not simply that he's set this thing up. But as we turn to his word, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us in the present. Verse 15, he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. So again, this chapter is a summary of his main argument. So what's he summarizing here? Well, he's echoing uh, Romans eleven twenty seven. He says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is he citing? Where, where is he pulling this from? Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We have a new covenant given us. This is the covenant I will make with them. We have a new hope. We have a new option. The old covenant was not working for us. It could not make us perfect. We could not fully draw near to God. We needed a final offering. So this is the new covenant that I will make with them. How will he do that? I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. That's how I will do it. And what comes with that covenant then? It's blessing. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. How crazy is that? That's what he offers us. That's what it means then to be made perfect, to draw near to God. You get this new covenant and you get its blessing because you don't have to keep it. He does. Whereas before we couldn't keep it and so we got curse. Now we have a new covenant with new curses and new blessings. But for those who are his, he keeps it for you. And we get the blessing. Spurgeon talks about this blessing this way. He says, Beloved, look up to Christ now. Just look up. And let the eye of your faith catch a sight of him. Behold him there with many crowns upon his head. Remember, as you see him there, you will one day be like him when you shall see him as he is. 
You shall not be as great as he is. You shall not be as glorious in degree, but still you shall, in a measure, share the same honors and enjoy the same happiness and the same dignity which he possesses. Be then content now to live unknown for a little while. Be content to bear the sneer, the jest, the joke, the ribald song. Be content to walk your weary way through the fields of poverty or up the hills of affliction. By and by, you shall reign with Christ. For he has made us kings and priests unto God, and we shall reign forever and ever. By and by, we shall share the glories of the head. The oil has been poured on his head. It has not trickled down to us yet, save only in that faithful fellowship which we have. But by and by, that oil shall flow to the very skirts of the garments. And we, the meanest of his people, shall share a part in the glories of his house by being made kings with him to sit on his throne, even as he sits on his father's throne. That's better. That's better than the old covenant. That's a heck of a lot better. It is superior in every way. And that is the promise that you have. That should be what drives you. When we talk about knowing and loving Jesus so that we might obey him, it's through that covenant. It's that. That's what you get. That's the blessing that comes with this covenant that he has kept on your behalf as a willing offering. What's the problem then? We still have to be faithful. We don't earn it. We have to be faithful. And it's interesting specifically because why here, of all places, when the usual thing in the scriptures is to say, the Lord has said, as it is said in the scriptures, as the prophets said, here he says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, the Holy Spirit's the one saying this in Jeremiah. And he's saying it for us. He's bearing witness to us. He says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What laws? We've talked about this already. It shouldn't be new. But what laws? The law. The law. There's, there's one. The law. But isn't that the old covenant? Yes. And? He's writing it on your hearts. He's writing it on your mind. See, there's this problem that we have, I think, of some like latent dispensationalism. Whether you grew up in this wholeheartedly, whether you still embrace it, there's some problems with it. One of the particular problems that we see in the church at large for the past 60 or more years has been dispensationalism, a relatively new uh, novel concept. The key distinctive is this, absolute separation between Israel and the church. In fact, they would say so much as to say that the church age now is but a parenthesis inside the story of Israel as a whole. And you say, okay, that sounds a little shady, maybe. Maybe you believe that's the case. I would encourage you that it's very not. Um, that being said, theoretically, you could try to hold that position. 
until we enter into the beginning of a host of problems. Um, for one, here he's saying Old Testament is the new covenant, is for you the church, right? Like that, that kind of does away with the whole thing automatically because what happens then with the biggest problem for what I'm calling latent dispensationalism, if the Old Testament is for Israel and the New Testament is for the church and when the church thing's done, he's gonna finalize the whole Israel thing, then that means that I don't have to listen to the law. It's not for me, it's for Israel. The only thing that I need is the New Testament. Anything that's in the New Testament for the church, awesome. Some of it, in fact, is still for Israel because he's talking about that because that's the main story, they would say. And so now I have complete permission to disregard everything in the Old Testament. What does that mean? No law. None. And full permission to do so. Where does that get us? A people who don't know God. Who look at the image of Jesus, who says that he's fulfilled the law, and yet don't know him. This is what he means when he said, did you not do stuff in your name? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's how we get there. And if you're like me, brought up in this tradition, you see how this starts to intermingle into a lot of what you read and a lot of what you understand in the scriptures. But I would say that the biggest issue is this. The scriptures make no distinction between the law and the New Testament, the New Covenant. It is different in what it does, but there's no distinction in that it is for the believer. And you find that fully here. The Holy Spirit, the one that could only come after Jesus ascended, right? The one that's meant to be your paraclete, the one that's meant to be the interface between you and God, that's meant to be the indwelling and power that comes upon you, Acts 1-8, as you go into all the nations, right? That Holy Spirit says that I will take the law and put it on your heart. I will take the law and put it on your mind. And if you really read the rest of the passage from Jeremiah 33, we see that then we will be his people and he will be our God. The Old Testament God. That one, the only one there is. Why am I upset about this? <laughs> because, what's verse 18 say? I remember your lawless deeds no more. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake for him. In Jeremiah 33, 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. What does he say in verse 18? Or, sorry, 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He changed it. Why did he change it? Because he's talking about the law. That's what iniquity is after. He's talking about the law. And so here, this is the main point. Ready? The witness to your sanctification, right? That's the goal. We have to be sanctified in order to be made perfect, right? The witness, the one who sees and testifies to your sanctification and being made perfect, verse 14, is the Holy Spirit himself who testifies, gives witness to, speaks out in front of the court, right? That God's law is internalized in you. It's written on your heart. It's written on your mind. And that you now do God's will. Not perfectly, but an intention and an endeavor. And he, the Holy Spirit, is the one powering you to do that. 
You understand? That's a big deal. In the courtroom of God, in front of the throne, as we're going to read about in just a minute, the Holy Spirit stands there, testifies to the judge, and says, Dear Judge, God the Father, they're being sanctified. They're being made perfect by the offering of your Son. As they draw near to you. Right? How do I know this? How can I testify to you, the Father, and tell you that this is the case? Because, Father, you wrote on their hearts. You wrote on their minds. You did that. And they now do that will. They're not there yet. That's being filled up. They're being made into that image by your power through me. Their intention is there. They endeavor to be made into the likeness of your son, and I'm helping them do it. That's what he testifies to the Father. That's a big deal. And now we see that our lawless deeds have been covered over. The law that is written on our hearts that we failed to keep has been covered over. And so, for us, if this is the continuing process of sanctification in our lives, if this is to be the reality of what we are as a people, then we need the Holy Spirit's constant reminder of that indwelling word that's written in our minds. You don't have to be scared of the law. You've been made perfect. You don't have to worry about it being written on your heart and the fact that you can't keep it. He did. A willing offering on your behalf. And even then, when you still can't do it and you need encouragement, what is the greatest message that the Holy Spirit is saying? Because that's the argument here, right? He says, he bears witness to us saying this, I see it, I wrote it on their hearts. And then he adds, this is what he's really trying to get after. He adds this last part, the second part. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. The greatest message that this word conveys to us is the assurance of forgiveness. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So man, for the rest of your life in progressive sanctification, that's what's true for you. That's what's true. In spite of anything else that the enemy who may try to deceive you would tell you, this is what's true of you. If you are a covenant believer, Know and treasure his kindness towards you. You won't be able to finish any other way. That's where all the warnings came from. There's more to come. <laughs> There's more warnings. Know and treasure his kindness towards you. If I've learned anything in sports and in training and in jujitsu, and as I look at people who teach self-defense and, and military training and stuff like that, they all say the same thing. He said that you will never rise to the occasion. When stress hits, when the poop hits the fan, you will never rise to the occasion. You will always fall to the level of your training. You may think, Mama Bear, that no one will ever hurt your child in front of you. But when a crazy man comes into a park with a knife, time after time after time, there's video evidence of this, Mama Bear doesn't know what to do. She falls to her knees and freezes, and the child gets stabbed. There's video. It happens. This is the case. And really, you're saying, no, I would never do that. I would scratch. I would claw. Or better yet, I would run, which is what you should always do. 
But you know what? Have you ever trained that? Have you ever practiced in a highly stressful situation getting away from a crazy person with a knife? You won't. You'll freeze. The same thing is true in the most mediocre of things. If I have to run a football play and I've never practiced it, I ain't going to make it happen. It's not going to happen. I'm not trained it. If I'm not in the stressful situation and I'm not trained it, I will not rise to the occasion. I'll fall to the level of my training. It is true for all of us, as much as we hate it. So what happens, Christian, when you get into James chapters 1 through 3, and it tells you that things are bad and suffering's coming, and you've not trained in suffering and affliction, how will you rise to the occasion? By training in righteousness, by training in sanctification, by believing this is true. What happens when the preacher says something you don't like? If you haven't practiced, if you don't know that this is true, then you're missing the entire point of what I'm challenging you with. If you can't hold in your hand the fact that you're made perfect and are being made perfect, and I tell you that you're here, knowing that you're going to get here, and I want you to get there, then you'll get mad at me and you'll fall to the level of your training. When the Lord pushes you and disciplines you and shapes you as we're getting ready to see very soon in Hebrews, because he loves you, do you think you'll rise to the occasion? Or do you think you will fall to the level of your training? In the Lord's great mercy, he trains us. He trains us. But he does so with this promise of knowing what stands I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Church, when we hold your lawless deeds and your sins in front of you, it's because we know that he has forgotten them and that your repentance and work through them will get you past them. That's the promise. That's what motivates and, and drives us forward. Because we know and love and treasure his kindness towards us. And so finally... I want you to see this. In light of that promise, in light of that reality, fight for your king. Fight for your king. I'd be remiss if we didn't focus a good bit on this middle section. We've already done the call out from Jeremiah in the last half of the passage, but here nestled into the, the second quarter of this passage, is this picture that we have of what's happening in heaven. Now, we had a great picture of the ascension and its importance in Pastor Matt's sermon not long ago and showing us what he's doing as he goes essentially from station to station of the heavenly versions of the shadow of what's in the tabernacle and sprinkles his blood over each section, right? We have that picture. But then what? He sits down. He sits down. And there's more. <laughs> there's more. Now, before we get here, I want, I want to trace this for you, all right? The sitting down thing is not new, all right? We've heard it before. So in our passage today, right? I'll, I'll tell you where we are. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That should mean something more to you now. But when Christ, literally it says this one, <laughs> but when this one, and, and every priest stands daily doing this, but when this one, the one, right, has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And there's more. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, this isn't new. This is not new. Chapter 1, verse 3, the book opens this way. It says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's been the theme from the beginning. He goes on to say in the same chapter, 10 verses later, verse 13, God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Our passage today, 10, 12 to 13, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Later in chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where does this come from? Why, why is he harping on this so much? Well, Mark chapter 16, 19 through 20. Mark ends this way. It says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, it's the ascension, and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. He's up there, sat down. Now, what's interesting for our passage today is that we have this accompanying aspect, right? It's not just that he sat down, but there's more. Until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Where does this come from? Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Why? Until... I make your enemies your footstool. That's what he's pulling from each time is Psalm 110. God says to Jesus, Psalm one, or Hebrews 1.13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he picks it up here for us again. It's not just that he sat down because he was done. He's not just the perfect priest. What is he? He's after the line of Melchizedek. He's the perfect priest king. And a king reigns. He reigns over his land and he reigns this particular one over all the earth. In which case that means that his reign is over his enemies. And it is God's task from the ascension and him sitting down until the day when he comes again, he is placing his enemies as a footstool for his feet. Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. He said, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, God, who, towards us who believe, according to the great work, workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Not just done, but now ruling, ready? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also the one that's to come. And he will put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church, all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool, him his head over his body, the church. Where are we? The body. Where's the body? On the throne. So whoever of you in the body or the feet, because we're all different parts, your feet are resting on his enemies. That's what's happening right now. That's, this is the present rule of God. This is the present rule particularly of Christ on the throne. 
And so we see that this is for a time, right? It's for a time. We get to pull out some of our eschatology here. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28. This is what he says. Paul picks up that picture that we have from Ephesians 1, and he says this in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the conditional statement, right? This is what he's doing. He's reigning. For how long? Until all his enemies are under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. (coughs) When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So God is the one who's not under any feet. He's the exception, right? The last part of verse 27. God's the one putting things, everything, under subjection under Christ. He can't put himself under Christ. So he puts everything under Christ, and then he puts Christ under himself, and God is all in all. And we know that the end will come. He must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what we look forward to. That's what we have now. A king who's reigning and ruling over this present age and having all of his enemies put under his feet. But apparently, there are those who will not take advantage of this sanctifying work, who don't like this ruler, who don't like this reigning king, and instead of becoming his purified worshipers, those attached to his body, whose body's on the throne, whose feet are on the footstool, they don't want to become his purified worshipers. They don't want to be made perfect, set apart for holy use. They don't want to draw near. Instead of that, they become his resistant enemies. They become his resistant enemies. And funny enough, they still accidentally draw near. It's just under his feet because that's where they're put. And we see this more fully developed later in this chapter where these enemies and apostates will discover how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. We'll save that for Pastor Matt. But for us now, we recognize that there are those who have been purified and those who are resistant And Spurgeon says this of them. And now in the last place, what are Christ's expectations? That's a really good question. What are Christ's expectations? We are told he expects that his enemies shall be made his footstool. In some sense, that's already done. The foes of Christ are, in some sense, his footstool now. What is the devil, anyways, but the very slave of Christ? For he does no more than he is permitted against God's children. What is the devil but a servant of Christ to fetch his children in death to his loving arms? What are wicked men but the servants of God's providence unwittingly to themselves? Christ even now has power over all flesh that he may give eternal life to as many as God has given him in order that the purpose of Christ might be carried out. Christ died for all and all are now Christ's property. There's not a man in this world who does not belong to Christ in that sense, for he is God over him and Lord over him. He is either Christ's brother or else Christ's slave, his unwilling vassal that must be dragged out in triumph if he follow him not willingly. In that sense, all things are now Christ's. Everything goes under his feet. 
You say, I don't understand why there is this difference. Why do we have so many enemies if everything's being placed under his feet? One commentator says this, this delay that you have, because we've said that the victory is now, right? We already have it. So why are there still enemies out there? He says the delay should be seen rather as the prolongation of the day of grace and therefore as a token of the mercy and long-suffering of God. We know from Romans 9, as we read earlier, that he has made vessels for honor and vessels for destruction, that he might be both the just and the justifier, that he might keep the promise to not hold sins against his people and at the same time punish all sins. And while the victory has already been won today, while you have time, today is the day to repent. This is a day of grace. This is a day of mercy. As a prolongation of the opportunity of the age to come, you have the opportunity to turn from being a resistant enemy and being dragged out into the sun for all to see your shame and then placed under the feet of Christ. It's your opportunity to turn from that and to embrace this blessing that comes in the new covenant, this forgiveness that's been offered to you as he remembers your sins no more. And rather than being brought out into the light in shame, you enter into the light, become part of the light, and then rule as light over all creation. Now's the time, and this is the only time. It is not a delay in subjugating. It is a prolongation of mercy and the day of grace. Because there is coming a day when that kingdom finally comes. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, Daniel has a vision and says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces by the stone and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. He interprets it and says this, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in all pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke the pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. We see in Psalm 2, 6-9, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, my mountain, my kingdom. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You're my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, the nations, all the nations of the earth, with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Our king is that stone, and he smashes all of the other nations. Is set down, turned into a mountain, and covers the earth. That's the kingdom. That's the one he's enthroned over. 
That's the king we have. That's what it means to be in that covenant. That's what it means to have his law on your heart and on your mind. That's what it means to share in his rulership. Daniel goes on in chapter 7, 9 through 10, with another vision. He says, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And that's where we stand today. The books will be opened. Where will your name be written? Because the king who sits on the throne can in three words say to you your entire fate, depart me thence. And you're done. And you're done. Three words, into the lake of fire. Or welcome, my good and faithful servant. Which will you hear in this prolongation of grace this opportunity that we have, will you fight for your king? Will you be one who goes out and serves him? Will you be the thousand times thousands, the ten thousand times ten thousands? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Will you serve your great king and fight for him? Because his enemies are being made as a footstool. And we reign and rule with him. So church, How will you walk in your sanctification and be made perfect? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this gift of grace that we have. For the work of your Son on our behalf to not leave us where we were at, but Father, even in the midst of giving the first curse, there was hope that the seed of the woman would prevail over the seed of the serpent. And Father, we know from from Jesus' language, from Paul's language, from your Holy Spirit, Father, that the true children of Abraham are the seed of the woman. And Father, we as Gentiles here today being brought in to this covenant. And where once we would say you are not our God and, and we are not your people, now you claim us and you say that we are your people and you will be our God. Father, let us live faithfully in that. Let us be a people who recognize the perfection that is being wrought in them. Let us desire that. Let us hold that forth to a culture as what is good and right for all mankind. Father, we do not know better. You know what is necessary. Your ways are good, and your offering is the only offering that works. So for the last time, as we consider what it is to have a once and for all sacrifice, let us go freely with open hands as living sacrifices, being poured out for your glory because we've been sanctified in our appropriate for holy use for glorifying you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.